Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. It's been a nausea-inducing week at sea. But enough about my holiday. Let's talk about Arsenal. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Who boy! So I go away. We hash out a, you know, a reasonably decent draw with Manchester City, followed by a uplifting win against West Ham, and I was all worried I'd come back and have nothing to say. Where would all of my anger and negativity be directed? I would have to direct it just at, at Paul or Tim and, and sink to the depths of ad hominem attacks. But no, Arsenal have resurrected my need for cynicism, my need to complain and whine and moan with just your bog-standard 3-0 away loss at Sam Allardyce's Crystal Palace. And I am thrilled to be discussing it today with Paul. You can find him on Twitter at Posing in My Pants. Hello, Paul. Ad hominem. Boop, 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 boop. Ad hominem. Boop, 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 boop. And hominem. Do, 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 do. And Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Hello there, indeed. Tim, let's start with you just real quick. Yeah. Um, we'll get to the football. I want to talk about the football because I, I think it's so easy to talk meta issues right now um, or just to bury your head in the sand altogether and ignore Arsenal. But uh, th- there's actually some interesting football discussion to be had here. But before we do it, I just wanted to get your take on the atmosphere at kickoff throughout the match and after the match, just having been there and having been an away fan for so many years, um, what was that mood like? And is it is it noticeably different? Has it changed from what you've seen over the past few months and a couple of seasons? Yeah, yeah, it has actually. Um, I, I wrote something back in August. Um, I think it was when we played Leicester away, our first away game of the season. I wrote something because I heard the we want Wenger out chant for the first time and it was concerted and it, it, it certainly wasn't a minority. And I thought that that was a real watershed moment. Um, the misfortune for me from the kind of blogging perspective was that that happened on the Saturday. And by the Thursday, Arsenal had signed uh, Mustafi and uh, Lucas Perez. So no one cared about it anymore. Wait, Luke, Lucas, <laughs> Lucas time, who? Sorry. Well, yeah, indeed. Oh, I remember um, so, him. Okay, sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> So no one really cared about it anymore by the time I got around to publishing on the Thursday. And also, I don't think it really came up on the cameras. Um, so a lot of people didn't really know it had happened. Um, but I, I said I thought it was a seminal moment because it was the first time that taboo was broken. And uh, I'd, I'd written that I'd just expect this to be an absolute feature of away games where we don't win. Um, and then, you know, West Brom felt like another escalation of it. This felt like another escalation of it um, yet again. Um, and what was interesting this time, and obviously the mood was as you'd expect and as you probably heard yourself on, on TV, but what was quite interesting on this occasion was that finally the players got a little bit of it um, as well. And, you know, I'd, I, it, it's not really been pleasant, the kind of um, atmosphere at away games for quite a while now. Um, but actually, when, that, that moment when... You know, the ball went out for a throw-in and the fan, the, the, the guy was about four rows in front of me and just to my right who wouldn't return it. And then you had like a few players standing there and they really had to face down the you're not fit to wear the shirt, John. 
Tim, just real quick, just real quick. Is it possible, because it's so easy to fall into narrative, is it possible that he was just not returning the ball in hopes that the game would have to be abandoned and replayed later? (laughs) It's it's quite possible, but I did see him singing the charm. Ah, Okay, okay, keep going. Sorry. (laughs) But it was like, it was the, because I think, you know, the players have been hiding under, hiding behind this whole Wenger thing. And don't get me wrong, we obviously have a very big issue there and there are, very big and obvious reasons why it dominates discussion but I think they've been hiding under well not so much his petticoat as his enormous bench jacket um, for the last few months now and it kind of feels like I mean it feels like at the moment as much as I don't like it well I don't think anyone likes it the the kind of negativity this this is what happens uh, dysfunctional football club when the manager isn't accountable to the board and the players don't seem to be accountable to the manager and actually, in that kind of 10 seconds where the ball wasn't returned, and I think it was Bellerin, Ozil and Chamberlain were the closest, and that chant went up, I, I actually said to the guy I sit with, I said, actually, like, good. I li- like, like isn't the right word, you know, but I was like, yeah, th- this feels right. This feels vindicated because they've been hiding behind that manager. And it kind of felt like this is probably the first time that they've, they've had to be accountable for anything this season. You know, the first time they've really really had to literally stare into the faces um, of people and and either they're not hearing from the manager that what they're doing is not good enough or they're not listening so having 3,000 angry people scream it into their faces actually seemed like quite a worthwhile exercise I thought Um, as to what happened at the end I'll be completely honest I left before the end because um, I figured that something like that might happen and you know, I, I I never used to leave games early ever. Um, the only game I'd ever left early was when we lost five one at, at White Hart Lane. But I've left the, I left Bayern West Brom and last night early, like you know when the board for injury time went up, just because I sensed that it might get really unpleasant. And while I completely understand that, you know, I I just didn't really fancy sticking around for it. And I thought uh, I'd rather get a slightly earlier train and not stand in a queue for forty five minutes. To be honest, so. I, I fully anticipated and expected that the, any player that ventured over to the away fans would get a mouthful. And um, to be honest, I, you know, it can go too far. But, you know, the, listen, the, the players are under complete control of this situation here. If they, if they don't do that at Middlesbrough, if they try at Middlesbrough, that will not happen to them again. So they are in complete control of what happens here. So... Um, yeah, it, it, it was the first time that actually I felt like um, some of the toxicity was warranted because at least it was kind of shared around um, between the owner, the manager and the players because, you know, this is yeah. this is definitely like there's a three-way plot here and, and those three parts all deserve quite a lot of scrutiny at the moment. Yeah, and I, I think it is only fair that the players catch some of the blame although you know you can't change a whole team of players right and at some point when you know when you have a player who's underperforming like a on that faithful day where he got booed off the pitch the sub was subbed um you know it's it's a horrible thing to have happen to a player but it's an individual um you know when the whole team collectively just fails that does hint at a problem that is not related to the players. I realize that the players Definitely. own it, but you know, you look at what yeah. Chelsea did as a unit last season or what Leicester did at the start of this season, and it's not great to see, but mm. unfortunately, 
you know, that's part of management, right, is keeping the team together and onside. Um, Paul, as far as the match goes, and by the way, am I correct in still saying that if you don't show up for a match or if you're disqualified, it's a 3-0 loss? Yeah. So, I mean, like, when the bus was late, like, isn't there an argument that they should have just kind of turned around and gone home? I don't know. The whole, the whole thing feels like sort of a, a wasted exercise anyway. But, Paul, um, you know, conceding three goals is terrible, but it's kind of become par for the course. I tweeted the stat that we have now conceded three or more goals in more matches this calendar year than we have won. Um, so I, I think we'll get to the defensive side of it in a minute, but from an attack standpoint, it really is hard to watch us play that way where there's that sterile domination. We've seen it a lot. I what was missing in your mind from the attack on this day? For me, I felt we needed one more dribbler, one more ball carrier who could move people around. We really only had Alexis from the left. Everybody else wants to run in behind or wants to play the passes, but no one really wants to beat a man and move the defense around. What, what in your estimation, was the source of our sterility or impotence in, uh, in attack? Sterility and impotence, Jesus. So well, Tim, the first thing Tim I was talking is, about putting heads under petticoats. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe we can use that image to get yeah. back our get back our, our virility. But what? Uh, yeah, that was what, a little disturbing. Yeah, um, listen, I, I got to declare, I'm the least qualified person uh, to talk on this pod, and I'm not talking about among the three of us. I'm is, including is, the listeners too. I, that, I got sub. Is is that a that? Distinct, Are we distinguishing that from other pods? Yes. Okay, okay cool. Just Decidedly. Sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, why is that? I thought we were all going to be very kind and we, gentle. No, no, no. I just trying to levity, a little bit of levity, a little bit, little bit of light yeah. in the darkness. What, what is the reason for that? Um, I stopped watching just before 70 minutes because it was like burning my eyes. Well, nothing really and, happened after that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, not much. And uh, I know I... I like to make out. I'll watch things twice. I, I didn't even watch this once. And then I went off to have a root canal for for real, uh, just to take my mind off things and make myself feel a little better. So basically, I haven't thought about it. I haven't even read stuff. Um, I dabbled a little bit on the internets today, about an hour ago, to see how bad things were. I checked the table to see how fucked we were. Um, so with that said, I did see... Most of the first 70 minutes through my fingers. Um, so I would do it in this order. I think I like El Nenny. I think he's a nice boy. I think he's quite a good midfielder. I think his rhythmic passing is good and is, is making himself available and standing in a spot that people can give it to. But I do think we saw Chaka El Nenny getting pressed the way West Ham didn't manage to get their claws into them. I don't think it really stood up. I like Chaka a lot, but he needs a guy beside him, as we've talked about before, who can relieve the pressure. And uh, we're, we're, we've been giving Chaka some some grief recently. Uh, I want to give El Nenny... Well, I don't want to, but I'll give <laughs> El Nenny to, yeah. Chaka treatment. He, you know, he can't run, he can't tackle. Uh, he can't... Uh, do a line splitting pass. He, there's no real threat there. He can't dribble, so it's pretty easy for El Nenny to be meh, and I think that has a lot of impact further up. Uh, uh, obviously, Walcott didn't really have any impact. I like Danny a lot, but he doesn't seem to be f- fully there, fully fit, and he had very little impact. So you basically had Alexis and Ozil, 
and they came in for a lot of abuse after the game, but I mean, in in a really poor performance, I thought they were the only two who looked like they might create anything. And I realized Ozo's stats in particular were dreadful, and Alexis gave the ball away a lot, and his passing stats were poor. But the only moves yeah. that did create any threat came from them. I believe I saw XG at two different places. One, I saw 0 0.35, one 0 0.75. I don't know why the discrepancy between the two. But either any way you look at it, um, there weren't a lot of chances created. What little was came from them. I mean, Paul, is it... Yeah, could I also add that my general impression was we weren't that terrible as an isolated game. Obviously, we were terrible, and obviously we got fucking bullied. Well, it's hard but to judge, right? Because when you have 72% possession, you're going to feel like you're controlling the game, but that's yeah. that was sort of an illusion, wasn't it? They, we felt it in control. An illusion. Yeah, uh, they were in control, and the game was played the way they wanted it to be played. I don't think... You, you know, I mean, it should. I don't feel we didn't try. Don't I? Don't feel the players didn't, in particular, not show up this game above any other game. I don't think our defenders had a terrible game, even if they were put on the rack a few times. I really feel it's this recurring problem of our midfield for for Arsenal and Arsenal's formulation to work. We need a killer midfield. We need a variety. You need, you need real quality in there. Chaka plus one other guy. You know, if you don't have Kazorla, that guy has to be a ball carrier, though, right? I mean, yeah. Let me yeah. go ahead. Yeah, and I'll just finish quickly. It either needs to be Oxley Chamberlain playing really great and to the top of his ability and and delivering on all the promise he he seems to have showed, albeit that was a game and a half, or Ainsley Maitland Niles. Um, I mean that, that's a bit of a leap of faith, right? Yeah, and massive. So those two guys, the the two I mentioned, massive leaps of faith, or Ramsey comes back to absolute uh, peak Ramsey and proves he can partner with Chaka, and we're so far from any w one of those being realistic that basically what we're left with is Chaka plus one other, and we're bang average unless we're pressed, in which case we're porous, and that makes our attack look shit, it makes our defenders look shit. You can't send out Mustafi and El Elneny and a small back four and not not only own possession, but but run the game. If we don't run the game, we're fucked both ends, basically, yeah. because that's how we're set up. That's the only way our formulation works across the season. We'll beat certain teams, Um will look good at certain times, but we are never fucking contenders and we're not even a top four team without a Chaka plus somebody pairing or and some replacements across the season. You can't it's not just a two person problem. Our midfield's so far away from you know, this is a car that needs an engine with some poke in midfield. And well, we're so far away from it, we're going to have some version of these problems regardless. Well, and what exacerbates it, I think, Paul, is that <laughs> you know, we are a team that desperately, against these weaker sides, needs to get the first goal because yeah. the minute that you give that team the lead and they can sit deep and be compact and play long, that, that plays into our worst qualities, right? I mean, we have trouble yeah. breaking down the park bus. We commit too many resources forward. You kick the ball long and it's two-on-one or two-on-two two against our center backs. 
Um, whereas if we get the first goal and they have to come out a little and we can start to find that space and counter a little and, and play balls in behind their, their defenders or even at least behind their, their midfield defensive line, then, then we can create options. Tim, two things that stuck out to me. One, can I, can I say yeah, one last word? For I us suppose. not to have the best midfield in the, the league or, a, or a, a passing claim to it is a fucking disgrace given that nothing Arson and Arsenal will never win this league unless they have at least a shout at saying we have the best midfield and that's not just two players. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, so, so Tim, uh, a couple things I noticed. One, I want to talk about Shaka just a little bit. I mean, he had a, a fantastic game in, against West Ham, and I heard your uh, contributions to the excellent podcast in my absence. Um, and uh, I mean, they were they were obviously lacking a little something, uh, but but otherwise they were excellent. Um, and and he really got a lot of deserved praise. But I felt in this game we saw a couple limitations. One is just that he's so left footed, and when he gets on one side of the pitch. And, and he has to receive the ball from El Nenny coming across. The amount of time it takes him to get it onto his left foot, those runs go away, those options go away, those lanes close. Is his one-footedness, I, I know it, it seems like a minor detail, but did it stick out to you as something that caused us problems trying to attack from, from when he had the ball in, in midfield? Yeah, yeah, it did a little bit. They, they kind of got him over to the left side, or I, I don't know, maybe he decided to go on to the left side but I I know there was um there was one point in the second <clears throat> excuse me in the second half where I think he then he he was sizing up whether to go you know across the ball with his left foot and tried to go with his right foot and ended up just rolling it right to a to a palace player so and what's really weird was against West Ham he was using his right foot a lot um, and not just for short passes either. He was he was hitting crossfield balls with his right foot. Maybe it was sore, um, <laughs> so he stopped yeah. using it this game. <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. And, and and I thought, ah, he must have really worked on this. I've never seen him use his right foot this often. And uh, I didn't get the impression he was, you know, hounded to the point that he couldn't use his right foot. He was. I thought he had a fair amount of time on the ball in this game. Certainly, when he was a little bit advanced up the pitch, when he was kind of receiving it from the centre-backs. What Palace did very well was um, they know Christian Benteke is no good at, at pressing, so they kind of left him over over on Hector and they pushed up players like Kabay and, and Punchin um, onto Jacker uh, and, they, and they did their pressing from there. But, you know, once once we kind of got a little bit further up the pitch, they obviously sat off. And, yeah, I, I think, you know... It's, it is. It's a massive bugbear of mine, um, one-footed footballers. But I think it, I think it really, really does have an effect much, much more than people realise. For example, when one of our fullbacks has the ball, and Nacho's gotten better at this, and I'm not picking on him per se because he's not the worst offender. But the amount of times the ball comes backwards and inside, um, because that's the pass to play with the left foot. Whereas if you pass with the right foot, you can go forward and outside. You can, you can make a much more favorable angle. And, um, I always felt and still feel it's an enormous limitation on Jack Wilshere's game. Um, for example, enormous. I think it's um, an underrated not, part of why Cazorla is so good for us. It, exactly. Exactly. I was just about to say, you only look at Santi Cazorla and he can go both ways. And the thing is about having two good feet as well. It's not just what you do with the ball. Um, in Holland, they teach 
kids to be both footed, not just because of what you do on the ball, because it makes you better balanced because you can go either side and it makes you lighter on both feet. Um, not least because it makes your, you know, it, it's, it's simple biology, really. It makes, it makes both your sides something close to equal strength. Um, and it means that you don't run with a bias, which actually takes a lot of pressure off, off your muscles. Cause if you run with a bias that you're always going to use one foot, you, you land on the turf much, much harder with your other foot. And, um, you know, if you've ever had any sort of ankle injury or leg injury and you start limping for a couple of days and you feel how that feels on your muscles, um, I mean, it, it destroys them quite frankly after a couple of days. So if you're very one footed, you know, that, that really, really has an impact on your composition as a player, as well as the fact that it cuts off so many options on the football pitch for you. And that's especially a problem, really, for a player playing in Granite Jacker's position because we rely on him so much to be able to to find those passes. Yeah, I, I, the problem is, you know, when he can play in deeper midfield and has a little more time, he can ping some really interesting passes and has great range. But, you know, he was playing, what, 15, 20 yards past the halfway line the whole game? And there you don't have that time. To, to pick your pass. So you have to use the foot the ball comes to. Otherwise, you're just going to wind up sliding it back laterally to your midfield partner, which he did quite a bit. Um, I mean, Tim, do you think that what was missing from the attack was, an, was another ball carrier or dribbler to, to pull some people out of position? I mean, you look at Theo, he's never going to have a lot of touches. Welbeck, again, he you know he's more about holding the ball up or running in behind, but not going to dribble defenders from the center forward position. Ozil carried the ball reasonably well, but Elneny and Chaka add none of that. I mean, is is that the missing piece? I mean, could we have used, obviously, Kazorla, but even an Oxalade Chamberlain or someone in midfield or an Iwobi, yeah. for example, to pull some players out of position? Yeah, definitely. And and I think, you know, my feelings on this, I think we always need that, which is why I've always considered Iwobi such an important player. Um, I think uh, I, I, I think you're right to say maybe even Chamberlain as well because what one of the things that um, I was speaking about with, with the guys I was sitting with in the last few minutes of the game was look at how often Bellerin's getting in behind their left back um, because we kept shifting them over and Bellerin three or four times got in in that channel and what was really weird about it was that it all happened after Theo Walcott went off and um, I don't think think it's because Theo Walcott ran their left back so ragged that you know he'd run out of legs at that point of the game I was looking at it and I was thinking Bellerin is constantly picking up this space so why wasn't Theo picking it up um it that now that could be quite unfair of me because where you're positioned in the away end at Selhurst Park you know I was down that side that Bellerin was coming down in in the second half whereas in the first half you know, Walcott's right up in the other corner of the stadium. So maybe I'm doing him a disservice. But, you know, I, I felt even with the really, really laboured, and at that point we were, you know, I, I agree with Paul's assessment. I think up until the second goal we were perhaps average. But um, it always felt like at 1-0 at half time it was a next goal wins kind of thing. I think if we'd have got the equaliser, we'd have, bit, we'd have gone on to win it. But once it went to 2-0, we just fell apart. Um, but, yeah, yeah, I mean... The, the fact that even in our most impoverished spell of the game, we were able to move their left back out of position so much suggests to me that if we'd have, you know, been playing somewhat competently or we'd had someone a bit like Iwobi to do those give and goes to 
to take players on, to commit them, to move them out of shape. And I think when a team is playing as Palace did, where they're compact and they're trying to keep shape, you know, your your best hope is to pull them out of shape because we all saw what happened when Giroud came on. Um, nothing. Uh, he, he probably touched the ball about three times in, in the whole time he was on because it, at, at that point it wasn't really what the game called for. So, yeah, Definitely. Tim, it doesn't look to me like Walcott is trying to make those runs anymore. You know, yeah. he, he stopped being an assister. He now sees himself as a a a wide forward, but not a very wide forward. Just mm. just right of the of the centre forward, and he's going to keep himself in a position to score that goal. Um, it's, you know, it's almost the like Van Persie he's, season. Those he's playing... those were the runs that seemed to be missing yesterday. Above all, we needed to get in behind, as you were kind of alluding to, to stir yeah. them up and, and get them out of position. I, I think w- what you might have hit on there is Walcott is playing in exactly the same manner he did when Alexis Sanchez was playing up front. And, mm. you know, picking up that kind of half space was incredibly advantageous for him and for us. But we're not playing with him there at the moment. And, you know, Welbeck's a slightly different type of player. And I, I don't think Welbeck and Walcott whilst Welbeck is in the middle, have sorted out who makes the run in which direction. Um, and, you know, Walcott looks like he wants his mate Alexis back there, quite frankly. Let's talk about that. Um, Paul, let me send it over to you for this. I mean, it's kind of a a, a pet issue of mine, so I, I admit that maybe I'm overly focused on it, but it seems pretty clear that of all the options we've tried this season, Alexis Sanchez makes the most sense at center forward, not just because he's been the best center forward, but because he's not as effective from the left. Um, and that he and Ozil were both both benefited from his, his central play, and he seemed to have a good feel of when to drop deep and when to go past defenders, and, and that he could turn either way, and, and that he was less predictable from the center. And, and the manager went away from it. I remember we discussed it on a pod, and I think you had said the verdict was still out on whether the manager had gone away from it. I think now it's sort of been determined that he has. In your mind, is that one of those head-scratching decisions that's really impacting our play right now? Less for me than you. I, I mean, I think the appeal of, uh, and the reason I would have been okay how we lined up in this game, is that if it's not working hey, we can easily swap Welbeck for Sanchez. That would have been my defense of, like, the starting 11. I mean, we didn't, but, though. <laughs> but we didn't. Right. And in previous games, I think it worked pretty well. I, I wouldn't... Uh, while I think you have a great, you're making a great point, the bit I, w- I wouldn't quite accept is that Alexis has been less effective from the left. I think he's been great from the left in most games when he's played from there. Uh, I think he was pretty effective... Rel- yeah. He was pro- he was again our most effective player in, in this particular game, and if somebody hadn't been dropping into that pocket on the left, I don't know what the fuck we would have produced all game. Um, because yeah, I, I mean, you know, well, we it, could have had Welbeck on the right, Knox on the left, or sure. I mean, look, there are there are options. I guess to me, yeah, yeah. he's been the one player that seems to really be creating danger for us and I'd want to get him in the middle because I think he's most effective there but also he's our best player there the other thing is I mean Paul isn't it maybe a leap look Danny Welbeck's a nice player and I like him he's back from a very long injury he hasn't played a lot of football over a few seasons he's always been inconsistent in terms of producing end product I mean even Olivier Giroud who's admittedly one of my favorites um 
uh, you know, is a more consistent finisher. Isn't it kind of a big leap that we've just kind of made Welbeck our, our starting center forward after so long out and never really being prolific? It is. And, he, you know, it's not like he's just been unlucky. He hasn't looked like he's 100% or anything close to it. He's been a Which very vanilla. Yeah. yeah, very vanilla version of himself. So, you know, I, I could have rationalized playing Sanchez from the left in this game because that's where he was going to get a pocket of space and some time to create some stuff. But when it wasn't working, when we had no threat, that's when the brilliance of me selecting Sanchez and Welbeck in that lineup comes into play and I swap them around uh, just to stir things around a bit and, uh, and let's let Danny do some, you know, it wasn't like we didn't need some covering back and some, some, uh, some, some hard graft as well. So let Danny do that. Um, and always in the, you know, we talk about parking the bus and they did, but that doesn't mean there weren't many, many times they were pulled all the way up the pitch to hold a high line because they had so much of the ball. They were so effective on the counter and putting under us under pressure and creating corners and, you know, that means they're up our end of the pitch, too. So there were the chances to to stir it up to you got walk off for pace, move Sanchez to the middle so that he, he can do his his runs and pull the center backs out of position. It wasn't them sitting behind the ball for 90 minutes. It rarely is. And it wasn't in this game, yeah. uh, even if that was their default mode there. There were chances to move it around. So I do agree it's frustrating to be seeing Sanchez stuck out on the left for 94 minutes or whatever it was. Yeah, Tim, I guess we have to get to the defensive side of the ball. Um, not that the attacking side of the ball was was that interesting to talk about anyway, but defensively, I guess the first question I want to ask you is, Does are the defenders for Arsenal bad at football, or does Arsenal under Arsene Wenger have a major problem with defending as a unit? I think it's clearly the latter. Um, I think history shows you that. I think, like, how many defenders have we had who are perfectly fine everywhere else um, but come to us and all of a sudden look like broken shells of men? Um, you know, it, it's very difficult in the last 10 years, really, to pinpoint too many defenders that have been reliable and... I don't believe that Arsene Menger just keeps buying bad defenders. You know, it's really only Sanya and Koscielny who've been, you know, I, I think you can make a good argument for Mertesacker as well. Um, basically, it's it's the guys who had enough about them to be able to kind of pull the threads together themselves a little bit. Um, whereas, you know, most players aren't like that. Even at the elite level, they need a little bit more protection. They need a little bit more... Um, guidance than than I think they get, and you know when you look last night, it was it was constantly two, it was constantly just Gabriel and Mustafi. That was Mustafi, it. That was it. Yeah, <laughs> that was yeah. the whole defense. I mean, they they played four four two, two tight banks of four, and then we pushed everybody but Mustafi and Gabriel into their half, and then they kicked long to Zaha and and Benteke in the channels or the half spaces, and they just bullied them, and that was it. They had no help. Yeah. And that, and that's that's exactly what um, you know. Listen, Sam Allardyce is the fucking worst for post-match interviews because when he wins, he will give you absolutely chapter and verse on everything that he did 
and every tactical innovation that he came up with. Whereas when they lose, it's all oh, the, he throws the players under the bus. I mean, it's beyond parody. Um, in fact, I urge you to follow the Crystal Palace Twitter account and just follow some of his press conferences because um, he doesn't pass. really. He, he either doesn't have any self-awareness or he just does this to wind people like me up. Well, considering case, how he lost the England job, I'm going to go with the former. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, true. Um, but yeah, that I mean, that aside, he, I mean, he said after the game, um, you know, we knew that they'd push their fullbacks up, you know, which is fine. All attacking teams push their fullbacks up. But I mean, the, the, the important part is then to provide some level of cover for them and What's kind of interesting when you looked at those long balls that were coming into our channels, usually there's like some semblance of, I don't know, defensive midfield player or something who plugs those gaps. But every time they were coming into like our right hand side, it was Mustafi who was going over and he was like simultaneously playing centre half and right back. And, you know, you look at he, 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 he could, it would have been harsh, but he could have been sent off. Um, last night because he had a couple of tackles where I mean he was just so desperate and so exposed and they were both in that kind of you know towards the corner flag kind of area you know he was he was basically playing two positions at once Um, and and you know it doesn't take a tactical genius to tell you that's not a particularly healthy situation and it, it just kind of feels like the de- the issue of defence is something that Arsenal pay lip service to. And then when they go 1-0 down, they don't even do that anymore. Um, they just go absolute all guns, kids in the playground blazing. And sometimes it really comes off and, and you know, sometimes it really doesn't. And last night it really didn't. And, you know, Palace had about, you know, 28% of the ball and they could have scored more. They look, they look more like scoring than we did. And, um, and, you know, that that's a problem. And, you know, good possession is also another good form of defence, using the ball well, keeping teams on the back foot. I mean, meekly rolling it side to side um, doesn't really do much to move your opponents about. It doesn't do much to tire them out. So, you know, they, they've got plenty of vim and vigour. When, when they do get that ball back and they launch it in the channel... Um, they're not exactly. They've not exactly been tired out by Arsenal. So someone like Zaha, um, and you know players from midfield like Townsend, like Punchin, you know they've they've got the afterburners on because they haven't had to do much work. So you know even in the kind of the pep sense of defending, i.e. by just not giving the opponents the ball or moving them about so much that when they get it they don't even want it anymore. Um, you know you have to be really really good at possession football to do that and. And Arsenal just, you know, they aren't very good at it at the moment. They haven't quite been good enough for quite a while, but now they are literally just no good at it. And it all serves to expose um, those guys at the back. And I'm I'm just waiting for the penny to drop with all of our fans to stop digging out individuals and look at the bigger picture. Because if something keeps happening and happening and happening and happening... There's, you know, it's Occam's razor. There's usually going to be a reason behind it. Yeah, I, and I think, you know, you can you can afford to play the way we play if you are proactive, out of possession. We are passive, out of possession, with too many resources committed into the opposition half. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, I think, you know, 
if you give players the chance to kick long, and look, I realize there's only so much you can do. I mean, one of their goals came from a literally a goal kick. But then it begs the question, why are our players not getting back fast enough to cover? And what's, where's the positioning? I mean, the thing that bothers me is there's just so many basic situations where our players make bad choices. And I wonder, is it that, that they're not being prepared properly, or is it that they're, they're defending in panic situations so often that you're just inevitably going to make mistakes in those circumstances? Um, Can I add a thought? I would prefer that you did, yes. Um, I'm going to come back to my my midfield argument, which is part of the reason your your fullbacks get so far up the pitch is because you're struggling to make anything happen. There's a sense of impotence in terms of you being able to crack open the safe, and basically everybody, you know, even Mustafi, you, you see, you see, the whole team is becoming a midfielder trying to help out, and it's not a in the end, you realize it's not a volume problem. It's not that we need nine players standing around in a semicircle. You just need two really good midfielders, like when we had, you know, when you had Chaka and Kazorla and Ozil, and they're all finding angles with their passes. Uh, or when we had Kazorla and Ozil and one other, um, because those two guys, you know, they're going to find angles. And they're going to surprise and they're going to twist and turn and they're going to dribble and beat a player and stir the pot. And the problem is when you have when you're two central midfielders, I mean, I think there's a lot of mileage in Chaka, but without Chaka and somebody else, you're not creating the kinds of problems that you need to. Uh, the players around them sense it's sterile. The fullbacks push up to give you more and more options and you're left with two at the back. And I, so when I, when we talk about positional this and, you know, players um, in in various positions not stepping up and it not being an individual problem, I don't even think it's a midfielder and, a you know, pushing on too far and people not yeah. knowing their positions. It's really, this is an Arsenal problem where it would probably all be fine, in my view, if he really had the killer midfield he needs. His proposition just doesn't work with an average midfield. It's just it, too much pressure falls everywhere else. Yeah, I get that. And I think one of the things we see with Arsenal, both attacking and defending, is that when the three units get too disconnected, we run into huge problems. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it's the mid- midfield gets disconnected from the forward line and there's no there's no connectivity there. But in this game, the the central defense and midfield were just miles apart. And it, it reminds me of Clive's... Uh, what was it, defending acres of green grass or something like that? I mean, it's just the amount of green grass available to play the ball into over or behind our midfield puts our defenders in a terrible, terrible position. I mean, Paul, just quickly, do you have any concerns about Hector Bellerin of late and his development? Is it a case of no one can cover the amount of ground effectively the way he needs to? Or is it a case of this is a young player who's played a lot of football and has no one to spell him, no one to come in and take the, the heat off him? Uh, well, I'm going with Tim's theory. I mean, I just don't think he's back to where he was before. Uh, Tim thinks he's carrying an injury. That makes sense to me. Uh, he, he's not back to the level he was. I, I just, I just I find do... it hard to believe that Arsenal would mismanage an injury, though. <laughs> uh, uh, but but fair. <laughs> To be fair, there are lots of players who are, you know, 
limping their way through a season because it's the best option. Uh, blah, blah. So anyway, I, can, I can't really talk to that. Well, yeah, we don't have anyone else to play that position, so it's a moot point. Yeah. Exactly. And I pray, I pray he's not been truly mismanaged. But I, I, I still think it's a mixture of he, he's not at a hundred percent, and the fact that if we didn't have a sterile mid midfield, he and Monreal wouldn't find themselves overcommitted far too often in a game like that. And what they're really doing is they're trying to compensate for the fact that we don't have any punch from midfield. Yeah. I I mean, the, the problem for me with all of this is just that I think there are too many players being asked to basically solo their way through situations, if that makes sense. You know, it, it's... Shaka, hey, sit somewhere in the center of midfield and ping some passes, and hey, center backs, like try to cover forty yards of green grass, and hey, fullbacks, bomb forward, and you know, try to o- overload. I, like it just, I'm not saying there are no tactics, but I think the tactics have just become too dependent on individuals making individual choices in the moment, and and it's not working. Um, one but, of the things, but I do feel that. Um, we're losing our shape because our midfield can't do its job. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with that at all. But I, I think, you know, if we had had, you know, pick pick your favorite midfielders of all time playing last night, um, I still think if they had been deployed in the way we were and you're passive when you lose the ball and you don't put pressure on the ball in an advanced position, you're still talking about acres of grass to play over the midfield long and you're still going to have two center halves trying to defend two center forwards um yeah but if you're but now you're right you're running the show and your midfields are your midfield is decisive and effective everybody else tends to hold their shape and be in the right position and be coordinated and when it all goes to a shower shit it goes to a shower shit and players are slow to come back. back i mean you could see where aaron ramsey was for the, I guess, the Kabai goal, the second goal. I mean, our midfielders are slow to recover. I, the thing that is so noticeable to me is when we lose possession, we are switching off. And that that's an attitude issue. That's not, you know, that's not a tactics issue. Switching off is not down to bad tactics. It's down to a bad attitude. Tim, we have won just one of our last 38 Premier League matches where we have been trailing at halftime. That's an Orbino stat. You can follow him on Twitter at Orbino. I recommend it. Um, works for Opta. One of our last 38 Premier League matches trailing at halftime. This is a team that does not seem to know how to chase a game without being totally vulnerable to being hit on the counter. And what really seemed clear to me, I don't necessarily buy the we quit thing in the first half. We just played poorly. The second half to me looked like we quit. Um, Yeah. Is that how you saw it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I I thought up until 2-0... Like so, with the with the it's the same. Well, it's the same comment I made after West Brom because, in many respects, it's an incredibly similar game. Um, I kind of got why we found the attacking side difficult because we're low on confidence. You know, Palace have just won away at Chelsea um, very recently. They're 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 doing pretty well. They're defending really well. I think I saw some kind of stat that they've allowed nine shots on goal in something like three games um, before they played Southampton last midweek. So they've obviously sorted their shit out a little bit. Um, they've they've bought it. They finally there was a bit of a delay, but they've bought into you know the Allardyce way. So it was never going to be simple, and we're still not confident. So I, I kind of get 
why we struggled to break them down. Um, but you know what? What a decent functioning team does is just make sure they don't concede. And then if it's still nil nil after 81, 85 minutes, you know, eventually you get the goal. Um, but yeah, I I felt I felt in the first half we were average. Um, we got caught out once. And I mean, you could, like in isolation, you could say, you know, we got caught on the hop a bit for the second goal. Um, and then, you know, and, uh, you know, Kabai hits a bit of a screamer, really. And then, you know, we probably should have had a penalty and then straight away Palace dive and get a penalty. But, you know, all it, that's if you just take this game in isolation. It's just a one off, um, which unfortunately it's not. And, you know, the most damning stat for me is that we didn't have a shot on target in the second half. Yeah, exactly. You know, Arsenal are an attacking team chasing a game they have to win. I mean, I mean, that's that's just that's amazing to me that that then, you know, the, the team that Arsene Wenger says all the time as a, as a kind of explanation slash excuse for the bad defending that, oh, you know, we're we're an attacking team and sometimes that's the consequence. Um but if we're an attacking team and we can't produce a shot on target, which I think was exactly what happened against West Brom as well, I think I'm right in saying we didn't get a shot on target in the second half there. Congratulations I mean, to us, yeah. by the way, for shipping three goals to Pulis and Allardyce in the same season. Yeah. I and mean, that's just fucking fantastic it's, work by us. Uh, yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's beyond parody, really. And but, so, but by you the know, way, you know, we went three nil down to Yeah, exactly. We we went three <laughs> yeah. nil down to Bournemouth, Tim, and you know, we responded. There was no response here. Yeah, yeah, indeed, there wasn't. They they just looked like they just looked lost. They just looked completely and utterly lost. And you know, I, I know you were saying earlier in the season when we were playing a bit better, and I think well, when we we're playing much better, when we we're actually playing quite well around about the September October time, and. I think, you know, you still had, um, you know, you harboured reservations about our defending, but, you know, you said that you can put up with that if we're attacking well. Yeah. Um, because it's more enjoyable to watch. And if that's how we define ourselves, you know, it's probably not enough to win the league. You can't just ignore defending because it's a little bit inconvenient. But, you know, you'll, you'll probably do pretty well if you concentrate on the things you're good at. And it will be a lot more fun. But, you know, you look at us at the moment and we're still, you know, we're slightly worse at defending, um, but we've always been a little bit bad at that. And now, like, the quality of the attacking has just completely gone down the toilet. So if we can't do the thing that we're identifying ourselves by, that our manager identifies, you know, our manager explains away our flaws because, you know, this is what we do. We're an attacking team. We commit players forward. And yet, you know, we're having all these games where we're barely, you know, mustering up a shot on goal. And, you know, that that speaks to something just being fundamentally broken. And that's why I find it so difficult to come to any kind of tactical conclusion about what's happening with this team at the moment. And, you know, intangibles are impossible to analyse sometimes, but you have to have that that platform um, that basic 5%, which is made up of stuff like effort and belief and and all of those things and confidence before you then have the kind of the other 95% then is, you know, your tactical setup and it might be the run of the ball or, you know, whatever, whatever. But we don't have that 
5% base that's, you know, made up of belief, confidence and, you know, a little bit effort. Um, and I don't think we lacked effort until it got to 2-0. And then at 2-0, yeah, I, I think we quit on the game, quite frankly. I think um, they looked like they were just waiting for the final whistle. And it's what they did against Bayern. It's what they did against Chelsea. It's what they did against West Brom. And, you know, it, it speaks to the fact that we have to take care you know, we have to take things a step at a time at the moment. We have to take care of that little 5% that's made up of all the things that should come really, really naturally. And then we can start to talk about, well, maybe who should play up front and what should the midfield combination be, et cetera, et cetera. Because I can't think of a thing I would have done tactically or personnel-wise last night that would have changed that. Like, what would have changed that? Playing Giroud up front? Playing Coquelin in midfield? Yeah, playing, maybe you play Alexis play, through the middle. I, I playing mean, Matt playing Matt Macy at left wing back, like what would have stopped that? Like nothing would have stopped that, quite frankly, because that wasn't, that that was, don't get me wrong, it was part of the problem, but the biggest problem to me just looks like, you know, this there, there is something fundamentally broken in this team that goes beyond tactics and team selections and things like that. There's something far more basic than that that well. is completely broken. And you know what, Tim? It, it may be that this Arsenal team has... It, Arsenal has been a comfortable place to play, and maybe the the standards have dropped, and the expectations mm. have dropped, and the preparation isn't as rigorous. And a few years ago, you could get by on that, but you look at this Crystal Palace team that's, you know, battling relegation, and there's Zaha, and Benteke, mm. and Kabai, and Sacco, and you know, th- there are players in that squad. Uh, Punchin mm. isn't a terrible player, I get, but you know, there, there's a caliber of talent in that squad that you would never have seen in relegation strugglers five seasons ago. And so, you know, we used to just out-talent teams. I really believe that. And that's why we had such a good record at the bottom is, you know, Arson used to say, you know, just go out there and express yourself. And the, we were the more talented team. And we could do that because you had a bunch of, you know, basically second division standard players playing in the Premier League. But that's not really the case anymore. So... That 5% you're talking about, that can be the difference in the big games, but it can also be the difference in the games further down the table. Um, and, and, Paul, and I know we're about to lose you in a minute, but that, that leads to the perfect uh, segue, which is Theo Walcott's comments after the match. The man who was wearing the armband says they wanted it more than we did. How do you, how do you respond to a statement like that. I mean, I, I know we imbue words with too much meaning sometimes because we want to see it as confirming a, a narrative or a belief we hold, but that's not something you want to hear from your captain after a match, right? It's not, but um, while I like the fact they let Theo run around with the armband, they should not let him do interviews. He's like, he's a string of consecutive cliches. It's like he's scoring bonus points for volume. Um and, you know, when, whenever you see Theo, God love him, interviewed, he gives the cliche back to the interviewer that the interviewer is looking for. It's like a, a knee-jerk reaction. So you think reaction. he got set up? <laughs> I just think he, he was in, like, football or being interviewed after a game mode, and whichever cliche pops to the top, that's, he's been doing that for years. I mean, I, I do cringe a bit when he gets interviewed. Um, so uh, it's not that I don't think there's a little something there. I mean, obviously they wanted it more than us on the day in the sense that 
it felt like, as Arson said, in the crucial duels, they won them. But it's not like they did, they won all the battles. We won plenty of tackles. We won plenty of battles. But they their game plan was better than ours. And our beliefs uh, slipped away um, when as the game got out of range and that tarnished the whole game so it looked like we didn't want it. Of course we fucking wanted it. Of course they were up for it. But there reaches a point where... Well, I mean, you, you say, of course, would win. you say that that was clear from what you saw on the pitch? Yeah. I, I, I mean, I agree with myself and Tim, who kind of agreed with me, that uh, taking a game in isolation, you know, we it was a an almost reasonable performance for about two-thirds of the game, um, as in not completely shit. Certainly not a team that didn't care didn't try, didn't whatever. The the fundamental rot in all of this is they have stopped believing. And in in previous times when we went to goal down or when we were in this much of a hole in the season, the team believed in what they were doing, believed in the game plan in general. And they stuck with it. And, you know, something like a month and a half, two months ago, they stopped believing that this uh, was a game plan and approach that was going to have success because maybe reality is just slapping them in the face. So I don't think individually the players don't want it. I think belief is a collective thing. It's not that they don't believe in the other players. They just, that mix of players, manager, vibe, game plan, and the way we match up against other teams it's a busted flush this year and around 67 minutes or so, it became very apparent to this team and it kind of ebbs away from you. And it, it looks like you don't care or you're not trying. And I don't believe that, that of the individual players. Yeah. Well, that's fair. I mean, uh, I, I will certainly admit that, you know, the nope. what, what are the three cliches? Oh, out thought out, worked out for whatever the you know the the dumb three cliches are but yeah we we fall into those narratives oftentimes when it's down to things that are are a lot more uh tangible um paul we'll let you go i know you got to run um paul is doing this podcast from a secret location in his car hiding out from the authorities um uh, with i'm his, in a walgreens parking lot um with an industrial size me- tube of petroleum jelly in your pants around your ankles awesome um Anyway, Paul can be found on Twitter at Posn in My Pants. As always, Paul, we really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Good luck. Yeah, thanks, um, uh, uh, Tim. If you don't mind, I'll just finish you off. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, finish so. off with you. Uh, sorry, I'll uh, stay around for this. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, warming to that theme, I I think those Walcott comments did finish me off. Did they? In a, <laughs> in, a, in, in in a not all too pleasant way. Um, my my kind of. Because usually, right, I, I don't, I just don't think it's worth listening to what footballers say. Because especially after they've just been running around for ninety minutes or whatever, because you know your brains fuzz um, at that point, and they're pretty much trained within an inch of their life not to say anything interesting. I never dreamt it would be Theo Walcott that would finally say something that actually interested me. <laughs> but I, I found that comment completely alarming. Because, and don't get me wrong, um, 
I don't think Arsenal didn't want it. I do think Crystal Palace wanted it more. I, it's not that I found that shocking or entirely unexpected or that, you know, I thought that, you know, oh, Castillo said that, that's what happened. I could see it with my own eyes. What gets me about that comment was that he thought that that was all right to say. That was kind of his explanation as if to say, oh, yeah, well, you know, that's that they just wanted it more. Oh, oh, okay. Thank, thanks for explaining that, Theo. And and that that really says something to me about the environment at Arsenal. That you know, our longest-serving player just glibly went on camera and just went, "Yeah, they wanted it more." Uh, you know, what you're going to do? Um, I realise I'm putting some words in his mouth there, but you, do you know what I mean? The, the, well, the to, to be fair, Arsenal the manager is, said he he gave him the armband because he's been there a long time and understands Arsenal values. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah, exactly, and 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 it's the fact that, um, and and I know Theo to an extent lives in his own little world, and you know he's he's not, he's quite dumb sometimes. I think um, uh, that, but that, like, how comfortable must the environment at Arsenal be that you know one of our longest serving players and an absolute bona fide first eleven player, uh, you know, just thinks that's all right to say and well it throws the manager under the bus completely yeah 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 and he'll get picked again on monday um i don't think any of us doubt that and and so like what what does that say about the environment and the culture at arsenal that someone just went yeah well um yeah they they just wanted it more i suppose but maybe that's a pointed comment i mean tim isn't it possible that i mean because of theo's sort of pleasant demeanor and nice guy appearance i mean isn't it possible that he's annoyed and he's basically like hey we've got you know a couple players who aren't planning on sticking around after this summer and you know who are worried more about their next contract and they didn't want it and the other team wanted more i mean maybe he's saying it not blithely maybe he's saying it out of frustration frustration with his teammates Maybe, but then he, he was quite a big offender on the night. Well, yes, I mean, there is the, the irony of it. <laughs> and, and, you know, if anyone should want Arsene Wenger to stay at Arsenal, it's Theo Walcott. He has a lot to lose, potentially, by, by you know, Arsene Wenger. You know, what, why would he want Wenger to go? Like, you know, he's, he's, he's having a great time. He's, he's getting picked every week. He's the captain at the moment. You know, he, and he's someone who another manager might, might not like quite as much, you know. There's a success, succession of England managers that don't trust Theo Walcott. The only manager that Theo Walcott has had in his career that puts any sort of faith in him is Arsene Wenger. So, you know, he's playing with fire if he's trying to get Arsene Wenger fired. And, and listen, I get what you mean. And, um, you know, you've only got to listen to... There are some Arsenal players who've been giving you clues in the last few weeks Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain said after West Brom that you know that that wasn't that wasn't um that wasn't good enough and that wasn't an appropriate way for us to lose Hector Bellerin said we didn't feel like we were ready um at Liverpool so yeah there there have been and you know what was it Ramsey said after Preston we were surprised by their approach like I I think those uh, are, are revealing um, I'm not sure it is in Walcott's case just because he has so much to lose and also because, to be to be honest with you, I don't think he's intelligent enough to do that. I don't think he's smart or bright enough to, to kind of do that Machiavellian thing. Like I mean, I said, I mean I it could be, in theory, he, he, he could lives. have seen it as a shield for the manager, right? Basically, yeah, like, yeah. hey, there are players he, letting the manager down. He possibly did, but I don't know from, from my kind of... Um, 
from having watched Theo Walcott's interviews over the last 11 years or so, it just does seem to me like um, he doesn't really think too much about these things, that he does just live in his own little world. And, you know, perhaps just, I think he just says whatever comes into his head. My approach basically. to the podcast, so, you know, can't, can't really follow <laughs> yeah, He just it. goes, he don't, he didn't like, I don't think he goes into an interview and thinks, all right, what's, what's the line here? What do I say? What do I do? I think, you know, I think, he, I, this sounds like a really weird thing to say, but he, he answers completely truthfully. In other words, not, you're saying he, you know, he doesn't have any spin control. Like he, yeah, he doesn't yeah, exactly, have the, the exactly. c- capacity for spin control. That's yeah, possible. Exactly. Um, exactly. And he, he doesn't see it as a problem to say something like, yeah, we didn't want it. Sorry about that. And look, that's it. He moves on. Yeah, I, I think we could get into the Gazidis and Kroenke stuff. We could get into the manager's contract. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things we could talk about. The the British core comments that the manager made, I I think, got a lot of attention. But at the end of the day, like, it, it starts to get redundant, and I think we've covered enough of this. Um, it's Middlesbrough on Monday. Again, we get to play on Monday. So, uh, you know, and again, another team that will be compact, that will defend. Um and it would be up to us to break them down. So we'll see if the manager has a response. Uh, you know, I think it's telling that we were unchanged from the West Ham game. You know, manager sort of saying, maybe I've stumbled onto something. And one of the things we've talked about on the pod a lot this season is it does feel like the manager is still just trying to stumble onto the solution rather than knowing yeah. what the solution is. And I think this is going to really confuse the shit out of him because maybe after West Ham he thought, okay, I've stumbled onto it. This is... This is the solution, and now it's back to the drawing board. Um, mm. I, I'll, I'll end on this just real quick. Is that the nail in the top four coffin, in your opinion? Uh, yeah, I, I think, it, I mean, mathematically, no. Mathematically, it's still very much on. Um, but it would rely on us, A, not playing like our souls, which... Um, no know, indication but, we can do that. <laughs> exactly, no indication we can do that. And we'll have to pull some pretty big results out of the hat. We're going to have to beat Spurs away. We're going to have to beat United. We're going to have to win away at Stoke. Um, you know, we don't have a great record at Southampton. We're going to have to beat Middlesbrough. <laughs> We're going to have to beat Middlesbrough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anyone's a bit of a problem for us at the moment. But, you know, we've got some of those big games against teams we traditionally don't get results against. And, you know, we... We, I, I, after the West Ham game, I thought, yeah, it's still on. If we go on a run now, which you know we've seen before, but you know it's it's all gone back to the drawing board. So even if we went on a run now, there's no guarantee that it would be enough, and I I don't see anything to suggest we will. Even if we had a kind run of set set of fixtures, which we don't. And here's a sobering thought for you: um, if Tottenham win all of their next games they can confirm finishing above us by beating us at white hart lane yeah as long as it doesn't get them the title like you know i mean and i don't think i don't think that's within reach for them so i've kind of conceded that they're going to finish above us we've done it for 20 years or whatever i i'm not i'm not saying i'm not bothered by it it will bother me but, Made peace with it. Uh, yeah, I, I would like to get into the top four. I know it is not a trophy, but it is Champions League football, and I think it is important mm-hmm. in some ways. And I think it it's something that everyone should want. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying it's enough, but everyone should want it. Anyway, look, the FA Cup is is ours. That's pretty much in the bag, so no problem there. Um, Tim is on Twitter at Stilberto. Tim, as always, I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Presumably. Uh, 
I'll keep doing these uh, until Arsenal win, and then I'll stop. Um, but, uh, yeah, so anyway, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Give our uh, humble podcast five stars, and then write nasty shit in the comments. Write it about Clive. He wasn't on today. Uh, this is my perfect chance to say stick that knife right in his back. Write some nasty comments about Clive. We need to get him... Uh, you know, in, introduced to that that sort of thing that we're doing there. And uh, Clive is off on holiday, so uh, he has a lot in common with the Arsenal players. Anyway, uh, we'll be back after Middlesbrough, everybody. Hope you're enjoying the football. Cheers. <laughs>